You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning. Hey. We're going to chalk that one up to user error. My bad. Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Matt Tolander. I have the privilege of serving as the spiritual formation pastor here on staff at Midtown. And um, quick show of hands while people are finding their seats. Anyone in here happen to live near 1250 East Palm Valley Boulevard? Does anyone have any idea why I'd even be mentioning this address? So at 1250 East Palm Valley Boulevard in Round Rock, it's on Highway 79 out by the Dell Diamond, there is a store there called The Luck Zone, which it, I've never been there, but my understanding is it's like a convenience store, and I think they, they sell lottery tickets there, and it might be primarily a lottery ticket place, but this store, Luck Zone, at 1250 East Palm Valley Boulevard, just sold this week its second million-dollar payout lottery ticket in a month. The same store. And, and it's actually, it's the third time since November 1st that a million-dollar payout lotto ticket was sold in Round Rock. Now, and because I'm immature in my faith, when I read that in the Statesman this week, I spent some time daydreaming about what it would be like to suddenly receive a cash infusion of that size, um, especially at the start of a new year. You know, because many of us, we start the new year, we have hopes and we have expectations, we have desires and goals and things that we want to happen, things that we want to achieve. And then, of course, we also have fear and anxiety sometimes going into the new year about the unknowns and um, the potential threats and pressures and even the potential losses. And so I started to think about what what a six-figure windfall would mean for me. and what kind of effect that could have for my expectations and my anxieties. You know, like a cash infusion like that into my life, it would make some of my goals more attainable. In fact, it would take about all the work out of a couple of my goals. Um, And in many ways, uh, you know, it it might help me make it feel more secure, like where my anxieties or my fears about this year are concerned. Um, And and it might make my life a little bit easier (laughs) to receive that kind of money. And so I spent some time thinking about this, and I fantasized about it a little bit, and then uh, it wasn't long into this little fantasy of mine that I sort of snapped out of it, and I remembered that money is like the all-time great over-promiser and under-deliverer, and uh, and frankly, that there's just, there are things in life that are more important than money, and there are things in life that I want more than I want an easy life, and money can't buy those things anyway. And, like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like there's the strongest part of me and there's the truest part of me. Any of y'all feel that way? Like there's, this, there's the strongest part of me and there's the truest part of me and they rarely want the same thing. Like the stronger part of me in that moment, the stronger part wanted an easier, a more financially enriched life amongst other things, but the truest part of me never wants that. The, what the truest part of me wants is a satisfied mind. The truest part of me wants spiritual soundness. It wants the ability to lay my head down on my pillow at night with, with a peace you know, and without fear and without regret and to have a kind of gratitude 
in my soul that's untouched by external circumstances, such that like even if none of my hopes and dreams for this new year come true, and even if all of my worst fears actually come into reality, that like the settled disposition of my soul would remain unchanged. The strongest part of me is, is reactive. It's highly reactive to my circumstances, and it swings dramatically from like euphoria to despair, sometimes in, in the same moment. But the truest part of me is just simply it's grateful to be God's child and to be alive in his world and receiving his provision and leaning on his arms. And the authors of the New Testament have a word for that kind of feeling. They call it joy. And that's what we're talking about this morning, joy. My hope for for me and for you in the new year is that the truest parts of us gain some ground on the strongest parts of us. And that by the Holy Spirit's enablement, we come out of 2023 more rooted in joy than we were at the beginning of this year. I think that's the best thing that could happen for us. The best thing that could happen for us is is not that we would win the lottery, and it's not that our life would get easier, and it's not that all of our hopes and dreams would come true. The best thing that could happen for us in 2023 is that we learn to have joy regardless of the circumstances. And... We're continuing our series this morning through the Upper Room Discourse. It's a string of teachings and words from Jesus that stretches five chapters from John 13 to 17, and it takes place on Passover uh, as Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover meal and they commemorate God's deliverance of the, the ancient Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And it's on the day that Jesus himself is going to become the Passover lamb and be crucified and In the upper room where they'd had the meal, Jesus had given them the new commandment. He said, love one another as I have loved you. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you show love one to another. He told them that he was going to be returning to the Father, that he was leaving them, but that he would return again. And in the meantime, he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them and to empower them for the work that God had them to do. And this meal, the Passover meal, is a, it's a didactic meal, which means it's meant to teach. It's actually meant to teach children about the history of the Jewish people. And so the whole meal springs off of this question that usually the youngest child asks it, maybe John in the upper room asks this question, why is this night different from all other nights? But this night, this night, When the upper room discourse is happening and when Jesus and his disciples are together, this night is different from all of the other nights that have been different in the same way. Because this night is the night that Jesus will institute the new covenant. And in a matter of hours, he will become the Passover lamb for them. Now, when we picked up the story last week, Jesus and the disciples had left the upper room and they were walking through the city. And over the course of the dinner in the upper room, they would have sung what are called the Hallel Psalms, the praise Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118 during the meal. And the singing of Psalm 118 comes at the very end of the meal. And if you read Matthew's account of this night, he tells us that the disciples were singing when they left the upper room. So the greatest likelihood is that Jesus is leaving the Passover meal and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. His arrest, his crucifixion are imminent. And as he goes, he's singing these words from Psalm 118. They're going to be up here. 
Jesus is singing this on the day he's going to die. I, or, excuse me, um, here we go. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So Jesus is starting his day. The Jewish day runs from sundown to sundown. He is starting the day that he will give his life for the sin of the world, singing for joy. What kind of, where does he get that kind of joy? How is it possible to have that kind of joy, knowing what he knows and knowing what awaits him in his life? That's what we're going to talk about. And so while they're singing and they're walking through the city, Jesus, he looks up at the temple, and the temple had this massive stone-carving mural of vines and branches and a vineyard and, and grapes. You know, the vine is, is common Im- imagery for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus looks at it, and he decides, I'm going to use this to teach the disciples. So he turns to the disciples, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, my father is the gardener. If you, the branches, abide in me, the vine, then my father, the gardener, will take special care of you, and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's where we pick up our text this morning. So if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand, please, for the reading of this morning's teaching text. From John 15, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So in John 15, Jesus is using the image of a vineyard as a way to circle back and illustrate what he was describing to them already in the night in the upper room which is that Jesus had a relationship with God, the Father, which was intimate and was interactive. And that same kind of relationship to God is available to Jesus' disciples, and it's available to us this morning in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls it abiding or remaining. And in our text this morning, Jesus gives us the purpose of this abiding in him, this remaining in his love. In verse 11, he says, I've told you all of this, all of this about abiding, all of this about remaining, all of this about my relationship to the Father, all of the plan of what the Father and I are doing together. He says, I've told you all of this, I've revealed it all to you for this purpose, so that my joy will be in you 
and your joy will be full. So you need to understand that, that joy in this context, it doesn't just mean a sort of you know, effusive happiness. Um, the Greek word translated joy here is kara, kara. And kara uh, has the same root as the Greek word charis, which means grace. So the words for joy and grace, or one of the words for joy, this word for joy in the New Testament, and the word for grace, they share the same root. Joy is a responsive state to having received grace. It is, um, it is gratitude in all circumstances on account of being both a recipient of and a participant in the grace of God. That's joy. It's gratitude in all circumstances, regardless of the circumstance, unaffected by circumstances, because it is rooted in an unchanging reality that I have received grace from God, and I have been the beneficiary of God's saving activity in the world, and that I've now been invited to participate in God's saving activity in the world through my interactive and intimate relationship with him. That is the joy that Jesus has on the day of his death. He was the recipient of grace. That is to say, Jesus received in his earthly life spiritual power from God, and that enabled Jesus not only to endure suffering and negativity, but to willingly enter into suffering and even death for the sake of love. And that is the joy that he wants to share with you this morning And the way you get that joy, to use Jesus' words, is by abiding in him or abiding in his love. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about abiding. Abiding has a few different aspects to it, and I want to talk about those aspects and what they have to do with joy. Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the barriers to abiding in Christ, and then we will uh, take communion together. So abiding, first of all, involves obedience. The starting point of abiding is obedience. Well, really, maybe more accurately, the starting point of abiding is desire. I mean, you have to want to abide. <laughs> you have to want to be in Jesus. And if, you, and if you don't want this morning to be abiding in Christ, if you don't want a relationship with God that's intimate and interactive, then I can't make you want that. And none of us can make you want that. But if you don't want it, but God wants you, then at some point, either inspiration or desperation in your life is going to drive you to it. And so maybe take notes anyway and keep them around for when that moment happens. But if you want it now, here it is. Um, Jesus said this in verse 9 of our passage. He says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. So if we are recipients of Jesus' love in a way that is analogous to his receipt of the Father's love, then that means that we have to abide in Jesus' love using the same means that he uses to abide in the Father's love. Are we tracking? If Jesus abides in the Father's love and he's the model, then we've got to do it the way that he does it. And the way that Jesus abides in the love of the Father is through obedience to the Father. Over and over and over again, it's really shocking when you read it all the way through, but over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking of his obedience to the Father. And I'm going to read five statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John that give a picture of what this obedience is like, because our obedience is meant to be modeled on this. So just look at some of the, or listen to some of the ways that Jesus talks about his obedience and his relationship with God. 
Jesus said that he received wisdom from God and followed God's example. In John 5, 19, he says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Jesus said that he submitted his will to the father. In John 6, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus experienced the presence of the Father when he obeyed the Father. He said, he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him, John 8, 29. And Jesus spoke and acted out of a spiritual power that he received from the Father through the Spirit. He says in John 14, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father within me doing the work. And lastly, Jesus saw obedience as a primary way of glorifying God. He said, I do everything the Father has commanded so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus is not subordinate to the Father, but in his earthly life, he emptied himself of his divine privileges and he submitted to the Father's instruction to be a model of true humanity. And so we abide in Christ by obeying him the way he obeyed the Father. And Jesus' commandment to us, the one that he's been repeating over and over and over again on this night in the Upper Room Discourse, is love each other as I have loved you. So we abide in Christ by obeying that command the way that Jesus obeyed the Father's commands. How would you describe Jesus' love? If we are to love one another the way that he has loved us, the way that the Father loved him, how would you describe Jesus' love? What words come to mind? I wrote a few down. One word that comes to mind when I think of Jesus' love is unreserved. Unreserved. He was giving it away. I think of his love was patient. Jesus' love was compassionate. It always had a forward momentum towards someone who was in need or someone who was marginalized or oppressed. Jesus' love uh, was a love for his enemies, like no other love in the world. And his love, most of all, is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that is looking to give itself away for the good of others, even at tremendous, tremendous cost to oneself. And in Jesus' case, it cost him his very life. So to abide in Christ, we have to obey him by loving each other that way. That's how we do it. That's how we get to a point where his joy will be in us, and we can share in it, and then our joy will be full. Abiding is not, it's not a mystical exercise. It's not an intellectual pursuit. It requires our whole body. You can't love someone alone, (laughs) You can't obey God in isolation. It requires our full participation uh, because that's the nature of love. And love is the second aspect of abiding. You know, love is is a major theme in John's gospel and in his letters both. He emphasizes that our obedience to God is part of a sort of cycle of love that goes like this. God loves us, therefore we love God Therefore, we obey God. Therefore, God loves us. 
and it circles back around, okay? God loves us, therefore we love God, therefore we obey God, therefore God loves us, and it moves around and around. So look at just a few, or, or listen, I don't have them up, but just listen to a few verses from John's writings about this idea. He says in John 14, 15, quoting Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John wrote in 1 John 5, this is how we love God. We keep his commandments. And then Jesus again in John 14, whoever keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father. So we see how this works. We, we never obey God perfectly. We never love other people perfectly. And nevertheless, God looks on our imperfect obedience and he rewards it with his love. He loves us um, when we obey, even if it's sloppy or if it's awkward or if our motivations aren't exactly in the right place. He rewards our obedience with his love. Not in the sense that we earn love, by our obedience, because love by nature cannot be earned. But God looks at our imperfect attempts at obedience, and he says, yes, that person loves me. That person is involved in what's going on. I want to empower that person. I want to show up for this person. I want to manifest more of my presence in their life. I want to supply them. I want to increase their influence. I want to pour my love into this person's life until it overflows to everyone around them and use this broken vessel to carry good news to the world, and it would bring me glory for them to bear much fruit. See, it's not earned, but it absolutely is a reward. The increased experience of the love of God in and through your life is a reward for obedience. Here's D.A. Carson is, is one of the foremost New Testament scholars working right now, and he's an expert on the writings of John. Here's what he says about how love and obedience are critical to our experience of joy. He writes this in his commentary uh, on this passage. He says, Human joy in a fallen world will at best be ephemeral, shallow, incomplete, until human existence is overtaken by an experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love for which we were created, a mutual love that issues in obedience without reserve, the Son does not give his disciples his joy as a discreet package. He shares his joy insofar as they share his obedience, the obedience that willingly faces death to self-interest. I don't know if there's a better definition of love than death to self-interest. Um, obedience that willingly faces death to self-interest. So facing death to self-interest is not something that comes naturally to human beings, is it? Has that been your experience, that people are naturally willing to, uh, to empty themselves of their own interests? No. But that sort of character is what has to be formed in us. And that forming uh, is what Jesus calls pruning. It's what he calls pruning. Pruning is, is the third aspect of abiding. Jesus said his father is the gardener. And he prunes every branch in me which bears fruit, John 15, 2. In other words, if you are abiding in Christ and you are bearing fruit because of that, then God is giving you his special attention. That's what it means that God is, is pruning. So think of it this way. Um, you know, I have like 17 houseplants. Uh, it's becoming a problem. 
because I don't have enough room for them. Uh, and, you know, I've learned a lot about being a better gardener since I joined the, the houseplant community. And I've learned that, like, a great gardener, like a really great plant owner, is not someone who just is consistent with feeding the plants on a schedule. A great plant owner is someone who actually knows the plants, right? Like, really, really knows them. They know where the plants come from and what sort of environment the plant needs to grow. Um, a great gardener appreciates the unique characteristics and needs of each plant. Like they know that a Sansevieria needs something different than a Monstera, needs something different than a Spathophyllum, and they know how to provide for all of these plants and recreate the plant's preferred environments um, in their home so that the plants thrive. But then not only is a great gardener an expert in each species, they become an expert in each of their own plants. You know what I'm saying? Like not the species, but the, the plant. So like they don't just know what a fiddle leaf fig needs, they know what this fiddle leaf fig right here and now in the living room needs. And Jesus has used this kind of metaphor to describe the way that God cares for you. God is a great gardener. He knows your whole history. He knows your whole background. He knows everything that you need to thrive and to grow. He knows that your needs are not the same as everyone else's. Um, God sees you. He loves you specifically. And so if you are abiding in Christ and he's the vine and you're the branch and God is the gardener, then what that means is that you are the object of God's precise, meticulous, expert attention and care. Now, but being part or being the object of a gardener's special care means that sometimes pruning is required. Now, when you prune plants, you do it for one of a few reasons. Uh, you want to remove some dead and damaged parts that are sucking healthy energy away from the rest of the plant. You want to improve the structural integrity of the plant so that it remains upright. Or you want to encourage new growth. That's why you prune things. That's why gardeners prune plants, and that is why God prunes us. He does it to remove the unhealthy things in our life that are sucking energy away from the healthy parts and the things that matter. He does it to preserve our structural integrity or improve it so that we remain standing upright. And he does it to encourage new growth in us. And it's unpleasant. Pruning discipline from God uh, can be an unpleasant experience. Uh, but Hebrews 12 reminds us that God only disciplines those who he loves. And so while it's uncomfortable, God never prunes us to punish. He prunes the branches which are bearing fruit. And so therefore, when we become aware that we're, that we're being pruned, or we suspect that God is disciplining us, that is meant to produce joy in our hearts, because it's a confirmation that we're bearing fruit. And it's God's way of dealing with us and saying, we got some stuff we need to get rid of. We got some stuff we need to straighten out, and I need to give you some more strength because I have more for you to do. So pruning is an essential process to growth. Our growth will be stunted as uh, followers of Christ if we are not pruned. It means that God is giving us his special attention to make us healthier and more fruitful, which is the fourth part of abiding. It's fruit-bearing, fruit-bearing. You know, the first command in all of Scripture that God gives to human beings is to bear fruit. Did you know that? In Genesis 1, it says, He 
made man and woman in his own image. He blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, it's a different kind of fruitfulness in Genesis 1 than we're talking about in John 15. But it shows us something, that from the very beginning, part of what it means to be a human being is to have a sort of um, a productive, creative uh, sort of output in our lives. And Jesus says the same thing to his disciples in verse 16 of our passage. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go bear fruit, fruit that lasts. So what's the fruit that Jesus has appointed us to bear in our life? I think you, know, you might think of the fruit of, of the Spirit from Galatians 5, uh, which is mostly about character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And certainly character is in view when Jesus is talking about the fruit that we bear, but he also means fruit on mission. He also means fruit in ministry. He means fruit in relationships. And fruit is a recognizable evidence that spiritual power is flowing through your life, and fruit is a, is a visible, recognizable evidence of the love that God has for you. Martin Luther said this in the, in the Heidelberg Disputation. He said that the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, you know, there's, we're familiar with, with the way human love works. Human love, sometimes human, human love comes into being because of what's pleasing to it. Like we see something that, that is pleasing to us and poof, love, attraction appears in our hearts. Or sometimes our human love is a sort of judgy, selective love where we're like, I know what I love, let me go find it. But that's not how God works. God's love doesn't find um, what's pleasing to it. It creates in people what is pleasing to it. Um, so if God wants your life to please, to please him, um, he's going to pour love into your life until it does. That's how he works. So bearing fruit. I want to ask, when was the last time you did something in your life? When was the last time you did something with God that you couldn't explain apart from God's action? Have you ever had something like, that, something like that happen in your life? Where you were like, I'm going to try and step into something in partnership with God, and I don't know if I have the competency or the ability or the talent or the whatever or the, you know, to get it done, uh, but you step into it anyway, and, some, and, and it gets done, and you have, you have, you know, there's no way for you to take the credit for it. You can only give the credit to God. Um, when was the last time that you saw something supernatural happen in your life? Or by, by a show of hands, maybe this will backfire and no hands will go up, I hope not. So, um, has anyone in here ever shared the gospel with someone and they came to faith? How much did that have to do with you? How much did you contribute to that? You showed up and God did the work. Have it, has anyone in this room ever forgiven someone that you thought you could never forgive? How did you do that? Was it because of, did you draw on your own resources to do that? I had a, a, 
a moment uh, a couple years ago where something like this happened to me. Uh, I was preaching. I was going to this church in Tomball, and I was going to speak at this retreat for teenagers. And I was really busy leading up to it, and so frankly, I had kind of thrown the talks together. Okay? Like I, and, and so driving out there, I was like, ooh, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't feel confident in the material. This is an unfamiliar environment. It's a bunch of teenagers. Teenagers scare me sometimes. Um, and I'm like, I, I, I felt panicked. I mean, I felt nervous. And so about 30 minutes before I was supposed to go up, I, I, I thought, well, I better just look at my notes a little bit before I go up there. So I opened my computer. I had written all uh, three talks in the same Word document on my computer. I opened my computer to look at that Word document only to discover that my computer had turned itself off and all of my notes for the entire retreat were lost. And I've got I've to preach in now 27 minutes. So I was freaking out. And I, I took like two minutes to scribble just a quick outline on a piece of paper and, and just went to a back room and prayed. Just prayed. It was all I had to do. I came back out. I taught Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are, who are weary, and I'll give you rest. And it was the most powerful sermon that I've ever preached. There was a, a move of God. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It was, it was a move of God in the room like I have rarely ever seen. And I, I grew up in church, okay, so I've been in a lot of rooms and I've, I've hardly ever seen God move through a room the way that God moved through this room because it was, and the primary way that I know it happened is because all of a sudden when the students go, first of all, worship was insane right after, but then they go to breakout groups and all of the, when the leaders come back from breakout groups, it's like everybody's crying, everybody's confessing sin to one another. And that to me is the first sign that God is moving somewhere is that sin is being confessed and what's been done in darkness is having light shined on it. So sin was being confessed. We had students confessing sin to one another. We had leaders confessing sin to one another. We have vulnerability and compassion and grace and tears and hugs just proliferating throughout this room. And I can count on one hand the number of times that I've seen God do that. And afterwards, the leaders kept coming up to me, and it wasn't the usual, you know, great sermon, really interesting. Like, it was like, it was like, I've never seen anything like that. It was like, how did you do that? And it was like, I've had these students in group for three years, and they've never come close to being as transparent as they were tonight. I've never seen them like this. How did you do it? And let me tell you, it took about 20 minutes for that to go to my head. And I left that room not shocked at what God had done, but feeling really confident in my own ability and talent. I left that room being like, well, guess I'm a better preacher than I thought. <laughs> I can get it done with, with, with no notes and just get up there and wing it. So I went home that night to write the next morning's talk because I had lost them all. And the next morning's talk was supposed to be on John 15. And so I open up my text to write down another little outline and I start to read in John 15, and I felt the snip of the pruning shears. And God said to me, Tolander, God calls me Tolander, because um, <laughs> that's what my friends call me. And he said, Tolander, you love preaching a good sermon 
more than you love relying on me and bearing fruit that lasts. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that was the moment when the joy hit. That was the moment when, when the gratitude clicked in for me. And I was just, I wasn't impressed with myself. I was just grateful that God had, had used me to serve them and to be reminded that it was, it was God bearing his fruit in me. It wasn't me bearing fruit out of my own power to prove something to God or to myself or to anybody else. All I did was show up in my weakness, and God made something powerful happen. And so I just want to encourage you to not underestimate the power of fruitfulness to produce joy in your life. Like, maybe one of the reasons that you're lacking in joy, maybe one of the reasons you feel like you're not sharing in Christ's joy this morning is that you're, you're not engaged in a way that would re- really require his assistance to, to bear fruit in your life. So I want to encourage you to seek out some, some opportunities to put yourself in a situation where you can serve and where it will be very hard to give yourself the credit for, for the good things that happen, um, as much as you can create those kinds of situations for yourself, uh, because that w- having God show up in your life and do, do powerful things that you know were not within your own capability uh, can produce massive, massive, massive joy in our lives. Um, so those are our, our four aspects of abiding. Abiding is obedience, it's loving God, loving others, and receiving love from God. It is being pruned by God, receiving his special attention and care and discipline. And then lastly, it's bearing fruit, fruit that lasts. But there are some barriers to abiding. There are a few barriers. I suppose the first one would be sort of an indifference or an ambivalence toward it. But if you settled that out and what you really want in your heart is to have this kind of relationship with Christ. If you want to know Jesus the way that Jesus knew his Father, if you want spiritual power to flow through your life the way that it flowed through Jesus' life from the Father, by the Spirit, and through him, uh, then there are a few things that will make it difficult for you to engage your relationship with God that way if you leave them unaddressed, and they are uh, up here. So the first is guilt. The first is the, the feelings of guilt in our lives. The second would be inner wounding or unforgiveness, bitterness about negative experience from the past, bitterness toward another human being. And the last one would be sort of deeply entrenched destructive habits, whether that, you know, an addiction, a compulsion, those sorts of things. Now, when I say that these are barriers to abiding in Christ, it, barriers is honestly probably not the best word, and I could have picked a different one. They're not really barriers. Actually, they can become pathways to abiding in Christ, but not if we leave them unaddressed. So if you have guilt that you've not processed about sin from your past or or heavy regret, if you have inner wounding that is not healed, and if you have in your life, compulsive habits, self-destructive habits or addictions, um, then as long as you leave those things unaddressed, 
then they, they will inhibit your experience to know God intimately. But if you acknowledge them and confess them and bring them to God, then they actually become the perfect place to meet with God. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He said, the, the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. But listen, a doctor can't heal people who don't show up for the healing. And so if you don't show up for the healing, if you don't involve this stuff in your relationship with God, then you're going to find it very difficult to experience the love of God and to experience the joy that Jesus wants to share with you. So I, um, we can't leave these unaddressed. We have to assimilate them. We have to assimilate them. And I preached a sermon last summer from Psalm 51 uh, on this issue, uh, if you want a deep dive on how to assimilate stuff like guilt in your life. Um, it's from July of last year, 2022. Uh, it's called Gutsy Guilt, and you can find a, a pretty detailed explanation in that message about how to bring this stuff to God for healing. But in brief, it, it essentially looks like this. We ask God to search our heart and reveal things to us that are not in alignment with his, his will for our lives. Once he reveals those things to us, we acknowledge them and we name them before God. We say, God, I sinned. I lied. God, I'm proud. God, I, and, and for this guilt, wounds, self-destruction. God, it hurt my feelings when they said such and such. God, I felt small. God, I felt powerless. Whatever it is, we have to bring it to God. We have to name it, and we have to ask God for mercy and healing. And then lastly, we have to enlist the help of safe people to walk through it with us. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.